Well, it's great to be with you today. I'm, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and i um, grateful that we are here together. It's good that we're here together. Um, as Blake mentioned, we had a great uh, 9 a.m. service. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's just some uh, new dynamics. Obviously, some folks maybe used to sit nearby or uh, now over there, but uh, we're just grateful that the Lord is, um, you know, providing some more space for us. And uh, that was just a wonderful time uh, of worship. We're going to be looking today at Philemon, and if you have, um, if you don't have a Bible, or if you forgot your Bible today, we actually always have some Bibles on the table. Um, I understand if you're like in the middle of the row right now, you may want, may not want to slip out and grab one. But next week or anytime you forget your Bible, you can grab one. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible, um, you can grab one on your way out, um, and just let that be uh, our gift to you, um, because we, we really would love for you to, to follow along as we open God's Word today. Um, of course, I started studying this uh, book last week. It's a, it's a short letter, uh, what we call an epistle, um, but I'm going to read the entire letter again, and uh, we're going to think about um, this, this great little New Testament book uh, once again today. So if you don't know where Philemon is, it's kind of near the New Testament book Hebrews. It's kind of toward the end of uh, your Bible. It's only one page, so it's, it's a little tricky to find. There's no shame in an index check, you know? You know the index check, right? You kind of act like you know where it is, but you really you quickly, yeah, yeah. So no shame in that. We are, we're a shame-free zone for index checkers here. So, all right, Philemon. Of course, we believe that Paul is writing this uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore these words come to us with the same kind of authorities as Jesus himself were, were, were saying these words to us. So... Let's hear together the word of Christ. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that is in your house, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I think of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ Jesus. For I have derived so much joy and comfort from your love. My brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man now and a prisoner for Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now, in Christ, he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, and I'm sending my very heart. Of course, I would have been glad for him to stay here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be under compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he parted you for, for, was parted from you for a while. You might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a brother, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to me. 
I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own life in Christ. But yes, brother, I, I, I want some benefit from you. Refresh my heart in Christ. I'm confident of your obedience, so I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I may be released and graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week we started this series and um, we said that it's kind of a strange New Testament book. It's not full of a lot of the, the big kind of theological language that we see in like Ephesians or Romans. It doesn't have a lot of narrative about the life and work of Christ like you would see in, in one of the gospel books. It's this simple request from Paul to Philemon to release his bondservant Onesimus. Now, last week, if you were here, I gave some of the background of the story. I tried to fill in what the story was actually saying. And we said that even though this letter seems kind of simple, there's really more to it than meets the eye. I've said this before, um, but it's probably been more than a year. Kenneth Latteret wrote this great history of uh, the church. It's Now, I actually haven't even read the whole thing. It's, it's a bear. It's a seven-volume church history it's called The History of Christian Expansion, but Latteret's writing style in the book, if you're, if you're like a church history nerd out there, you, you should invest. You can find it used. But, but anyway, in, he talks about different movements when Christianity really grew, when the church really grew. And in, in the first volume, he talks about two in particular. And they were during two times of a great plague in the Roman Empire. The first was in AD 165, and it was the Antonine Plague. And then the second was in AD 251, the Plague of Cyprian. Now, these plagues were, were horrible. They kind of came to mind this week as I was thinking about the coronavirus, right? Everybody is nervous about the coronavirus. I'm, I'm surprised some of you aren't wearing masks today. Um, but there's a lot of nervousness. It is obviously a very, very serious thing, and, and people are um, obviously suffering because of this. And, um, but just to give you some context, in, in both of these viruses, in both of these plagues, the Antonine Plague of AD 165 and the Plague of Cyprian, 251 AD, people estimate that 20 to 25% of the entire Roman population was wiped out, died as a result of these two plagues. Now today, I mean, think of all the fear Think of all the concern, of all the thought uh, concerning the coronavirus. Well, in Wuhan, in like the place where the, the plague is at, the, the plague, the, the disease is at its height, only two one-hundredths of one percent of the population of Wuhan, that centralized area, has died as a result of the plague. Two one-hundredths of one percent of the population of the highest uh, concentrated area has died as a result of the, the coronavirus. Yet in these plagues that I'm talking about here, 165 to 251 AD, 20 to 25% of the entire Roman population was being wiped out. So the reason I tell you that is you can imagine the kind of terror that people had. You can imagine the kind of fear and trepidation that people would have had. This was a deadly, deadly 
disease, a deadly, deadly time in human history. And, and it was concentrated in the cities. Uh, so uh, something that uh, you may not know is that in the early period of church growth, Christianity was mainly an urban religion. It was an urban faith. It grew more rapidly in the cities than it did in the rural areas. In fact, the word pagan comes from the word paganus, which means rural or agrarian kind of area. So it was the cities, actually, it's kind of the opposite today, right? The rural areas are usually more religious. The cities are more secular. But in that time, it was the cities that were more religious and certainly more Christian and the rural areas, obviously, that were more, they're more pagan. But anyway, this was spreading through the cities. It was concentrated in the cities. And so Roman people at the time were fleeing the cities. They were getting away from the cities to get away from this plague. And in many cases, they were abandoning their friends, friends that literally gotten sick. They needed care, but people were abandoning them because they didn't want to get sick. Uh, people were abandoning uh, the, the communities that lived around them. And a lot of times they were even abandoning their own families. In many cases, people even were abandoning their own children. But you know who stayed? You know who stayed in the cities, who didn't flee the cities? It was the Christians. In many cases, it was the Christians that, that stuck around and not only cared for their own sick, but they also cared for the sick of their Roman friends and neighbors that lived around them. And this was so striking to people. It was so strange for people. And again, there's not like a miracle story attached to this. It's not, it's not like they were staying around caring for the sick and never getting sick themselves. No, they were actually getting sick and in many cases dying themselves. But because it was the right and loving thing to do, they were sticking around and caring for the people that were, were truly suffering. Well, what's even more interesting about this is that both of these seasons, 165, if you, if you know kind of your Roman persecution history, and AD 251, these are times when the persecution against the church leading up to these plagues, the persecution against the church was at its highest throughout the first 300 years of church history. And so in a very real sense, these Christians at this time were blessing those who persecuted them. In a very real sense, these Christians were loving their enemies. In a very real sense, these Christians were forgiving the very people that were putting them to death. In other words, these Christians were doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. They were behaving in the kind of way that Jesus behaved. And therefore, when these people saw this, when they saw how the gospel had actually changed their heart and life, they were more apt, they were more open to hear about this Jesus that these people loved and worshiped. And that, that's an example of why I think the story of Philemon, this letter of Philemon, is so helpful. It's a real-life situation. It's real-life Christianity. How do you apply the gospel in a situation where you've had a bondservant that ran away from you? How do you apply the gospel in a situation where a runaway slave shows up in the jail cell next to yours? And I just want to say, your Christianity, your, your Christian discipleship, is best understood in the context of real-life situations. How, how deeply the gospel has impacted you and changed you and affected you is actually best understood, not in a worship service, so this is important, but it's, it's best understood in how you respond to real-life 
situations around you. You know, a, a worship service is good. It's profitable. We should be gathering. We should not neglect the congregation. And, and in worship, we can learn about the Lord. We can worship the Lord. We can train our hearts and our minds toward godliness. But your faith, your Christianity is really tested not so much in here, but out there. The, the impact of the gospel in your life is known not so much in here, but out there. In the way that we live and move, in the way that we conduct ourselves, in the way that we scatter. So if you were here last week, we looked at a couple of things in the letter. The, the big thing that we looked at was how, how Paul is appealing to Philemon. So if you are here last week, we, we kind of looked at this letter as a, as a guide for Christian discipleship. Paul is appealing to Philemon's heart. He's not commanding him. He's not trying to create an external guide for him. He is saying, look, remember who you are, Philemon. Remember how the gospel has changed you. And, and because the gospel has changed you from the inside out, from the affections out, you should, should do this thing or that. But what I want to do this week is, is kind of in the same way, understanding how the gospel compels us. I want to kind of slow down and look at a couple of character sketches within this little letter. And really, I think kind of the three main characters of the letter, we can learn a lot from their lives and actually what the gospel compelled each of them to do. So let's start with Onesimus. Onesimus is easily forgotten in the letter, right? He's kind of in the background. You know, it seems like a dialogue between Paul and Philemon, Onesimus is just kind of the setting, right? He's just kind of in the background. Well, actually, there's probably more to Onesimus than maybe uh, you first realized. Onesimus actually has to do something very difficult in this, in this little story here, in this, this letter here. He has to go back and make it right with Philemon. We think about it from his perspective. He's a runaway slave. He's done this very shameful thing. And likely, we don't know, but likely he did something on the way out that was bad. He probably, you know, we can imagine that he stole something or that he and Philemon got into some sort of an argument or, or, or maybe he did something bad to one of his fellow workers. We don't know, but you can almost imagine him doing something that he was ashamed of. He got away from there. And next thing you know, he's landed in this jail cell next to Paul. And he hears the gospel and he hears about the hope of Christ and he hears about the story of redemption in Jesus. And he's changed. He's, he's moved by this. And, and I can imagine just how freeing the gospel would have been to him. And he, and he starts to grow in his faith. And Paul's discipling him. And he's being used by Paul. And again, we don't know this, but I can imagine if I just kind of put, uh, hopefully, my sanctified imagination to work here. I can imagine one day Paul going to him after he'd been showing great promise in the Lord. And Paul says, you know what you got to do next, Onesimus? You need to go back to Philemon. You need to go make that right. You need to go mend that relationship with your brother. And I'll write you a letter. I'll write you a letter, and, and, and I'm going to send it with you because I, he needs to make it right with you. But, but you, Onesimus, have to have the courage, and you have to have the humility to go back and do the right thing. And I just want to say this to you. This is what the gospel compels us to, to go make it right with our fellow man. And that can be very hard. And that can be very humiliating sometimes. And it can be very difficult. I said last week as we were taking communion, all you need to do, if you are convicted of sin, God is convicting you of sin. You've done something wrong. 
the amazing news of the gospel, as compared to really every other thought process, every other world religion, the amazing news of the gospel, that all you need to do, if God is convicting you of sin, if you've been convicted of sin, all you need to do to make it right between you and God is actually to look to the cross and to realize that in Jesus, God has already made it right with you. That's the amazing thing about Christianity. Was, we were talking about this on Wednesday night in our systematic theology class. But I said, here's what Christianity is. Christianity is realizing that you have sinned against a holy and a good God. Christianity is realizing that you have dishonored the God who rules over the whole cosmos, that you have, you have turned your back on him. It's realizing that you've actually offended him in a, in a great way. And yet Christianity is when you realize that you've sinned against God And then when you realize that the only place that you can run to be relieved from that sin is right back to the very God that you've sinned against. That's what Christianity is. It's when you realize that the same God that you've sinned against is the only God who can save you. And I just want to say this, that's not natural. We were talking about the work of the Holy Spirit on Wednesday night, how this came up. I said, that's evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. When you, at the same time, can realize that you've sinned against this God who you've, you've sinned against this God in, in ways that you never would want to admit, but realize that the same God loves you and pursues you. And when, when that happens, and when you can run back to him and realize that, that he's actually provided a way of salvation for you in Jesus, that, that's really what it, it means to be a Christian. You see, all, all you have to do when, when God is convicting you of sin, when you have conviction over your sin, all you have to do to be made right with God is to look to the cross. And remember that the very God that you've sinned against is actually the very God that if you run to him and if you give yourself to him, will save you. But if you have been saved, if you have found fellowship with God through Christ, then God compels us to live at peace with all. God compels us to honor one another. God compels us to do what is right. And oftentimes, Living at peace with one another and doing what is right and being right with our fellow man requires something of us. All you have to do to be made right with God is to look to the cross. But you may have to do something more to be made right with others. And I just want to say that there are some people in here today, there may be several of you, and there is a Philemon in your life. There is someone that you have wronged that you have offended, that you have done something that you're incredibly ashamed of before them. And and, and your response to this, again, to be made right with God, you just need to remember the cross and look to the cross. But to be made right with them, if you've really been made right with God, to, to be made right with them, you need to go apologize to them. You need to go pay a debt back that you've incurred. You need to go and humble yourself before them in some sort of way. The gospel compels us to have unity with one another. The gospel compels us to live at peace with one another. And this this can be very, very difficult. But there are some of you right now, even where you sit, even as I talk about these things, something is coming to mind. And some of you, there's one group of you, you know exactly what you need to do. You just haven't done it. Like, you know what you're supposed to do. And so what I would urge you is just, after the worship service today, go do that. Make that phone call. Go visit that person. Go pay back that debt. Go ask for forgiveness. 
don't, don't dishonor God's gospel by breaking fellowship with people that God loves. Go and pursue reconciliation. Go and be made right. Go back to Philemon. But there's another group of you. There are some of you, you're hearing this and you know there's, there is, there, you're not free. There's some conflict in your heart. But you don't really know what to do. You know, you're like, okay, look, I know there's some stuff between me and this person. But it's been a long time. I don't necessarily want to bring this stuff up again. I don't exactly know what I'm supposed to do to make this right. And I just want to say, this is the beauty of the body. This is why we have 12 elders that are easily accessible. This is why we have the text to pastor line. This is why we want you to be in groups where you can go and get wisdom from one another. You know, there's always more wisdom about someone else's situations than you have about your own situation, right? You know, whenever I'm counseling someone, I usually just say to them, how would you advise someone else in this exact same situation? And you know what they always say? They always give the wisdom that they are unwilling to obey themselves, right? Go seek the wisdom and the accountability of the body. If, if God is convicting you right now, here's what you need to know. All you need to do to be made right with God is to remember the cross and to remember that God in Christ is pursuing you. But if God has reconciled you back to himself in Jesus Christ, then he calls you, he compels you to live at peace with one another. And that requires more. That requires you oftentimes to do something that can be very hard. Philemon had to go back. I mean, rather, Onesimus had to go back to Philemon. What is it that that you need to do? The second character I want to look at in this is Philemon. Now, obviously, kind of the main point of the text, Philemon had to forgive. This is the appeal of the letter. Um, And of course, Paul is grounding this appeal in the gospel. You've got to forgive him. Remember how you've been forgiven. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember that he now in Christ is your brother. So forgive him, receive him as a brother. Now, forgiveness is obviously a big theme in the Bible. It's particularly a big theme Uh, in Christ and in the narratives of Jesus. Jesus is always talking about forgiveness, and he's talking about it in such a way that forgiveness is real evidence that you have been forgiven. Remember the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our trespasses. I caught you off guard there. Let me try again. Let's try again. Let's try again, all right? All right. Forgive us our trespasses. Right, you see that? You see, you see what Jesus is doing there? There, there? there is evidence that you understand the kind of forgiveness that God is offering you in the way that you forgive others. Actually, right after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says something that is it's kind of haunting. He says, and this is Matthew 6, verse 14, he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. There's a story that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 where he talks about this unforgiving servant. There was a man that had a debt, and his debt um, he could never pay back. He would have worked for the rest of his life, and he couldn't pay the debt back. And the master, the guy that he owed the debt to, came to him, and he forgave him of his debt. 
which was incredibly liberating, incredibly life-giving. This debt that he could never pay, he got back. He was freed from. But then, you know what that guy did in the, in the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 18? He went and immediately found some guy that owed him money, which was a much smaller debt, a much more insignificant debt. And that guy couldn't pay him either, and so he had him thrown in jail. Well, when the original master found out how this guy had responded, he went to him, and he was so angry. And the story kind of ends with that original master saying, throw him in jail and never let him out. And Jesus ends the story by saying, so shall my heavenly father do to you if you do not forgive. So forgiveness is so important, but forgiveness is, is kind of challenging. I mean, are we just, are Christians just supposed to be pushovers? Are Christians just supposed to forgive? Are we just always kind of just supposed to take it? Like, what, what does this mean? And forgiveness can be hard for a couple of reasons. Number one, forgiveness is hard because we have a desire for personal vindication, right? If someone wrongs you, there's this thing in you, if someone hits you in the face, you want to hit them back in the face, but a little harder, right? You want to be like, you messed, you messed with the wrong guy, right? You can't just hit me in the face, right? It's this desire for personal vindication, but there's also a desire in you for justice. You're made in the image of God, right? And if somebody does something wrong, you're, you're, you, there's an imbalance of justice that your heart just says, this is not right, that this needs to be made right. There needs to be justice in this situation. And so I want you to hear this. Christian forgiveness really comes down to a faith that God will vindicate me and that he will bring justice to them. You can forgive if you really believe that you are a new creation in Christ, you know God in Christ, you've been made whole in Christ, you can forgive if you have faith that God will vindicate you and that he is totally just and that he will settle every account. On account of his faith, Paul is saying to Philemon, look, God is going to vindicate you and God is going to settle this account, and so you can forgive. Now, again, people hear this and they say, well, hold on. Am I just supposed to forgive every debt? Is there, is there no room for the justice system? Where do all these things fit in? And, and again, I think this is, and I just want to quickly jump over here. I think this is where Romans 12 and 13 can be so helpful. Romans 12, 19, Paul's talking about this, and he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but, and listen, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I am totally just, I will settle this account so that, so we Christians, faith in God, we can leave it to the wrath of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to leave it to the wrath of God? Well, it means two things. It at least, it, it first means that when we leave it to the wrath of God, we trust the final judgments of God. We trust that in the ultimate courtroom, the eternal courtroom, the courtroom that God himself is the judge of, we trust that God will settle the account. And if someone has sinned against you, they will either, as Christians believe, we, they will either pay for that sin in eternal judgment from God or that sin has been paid for by Christ on the cross. But God will settle. If they're, if they're not a Christian, they'll pay for that sin 
uh, in eternal judgment of God, or if they are a Christian, that sin has been paid for by Christ on the cross. We, we can trust the final judgment of God, but leaving it to the wrath of God also means that we trust the shadows of judgment that God has put in place here on earth. It, it's no accident that right after Paul says this in Romans 12, in Romans 13, he talks about the governing officials that act on God's behalf as agents of his justice here on earth. So uh, Romans 13, 4, you can see it on the screen. He's talking about government officials. And he says, for he, the governing official, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So you see what's going on here? What, 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 he, what Paul is saying here is, look, what God has done is he's put order in place. There, there are systems of justice in place that you can trust. So as you forgive, as you trust God, as you leave it to the wrath of God to settle this account, you can, first of all, trust God's final justice. And you can, second of all, trust the systems of justice that God has put in place to bring about punishment and restoration here on earth. So all this to say, there are times when you should collect a debt. There are times when you should report a wrongdoing. There are times when you should press charges, not taking justice into your own hands, but leaving it to the wrath of God, trusting the systems of justice that God has put in place. You know, I've said this before, but at my house, right, there's a system of justice in place. If, if John Kellis hits Imriana, I don't want her to take vengeance into her own hands. I want her to leave it to the wrath of God. And, and what that means is trusting that God will deal with John Kellis and also trusting that I will deal with John Kellis, right? I want her to trust the system of just, justice, the shadow of justice that she is under in our own home. And, and we're obviously called to do the same thing. But because of that, we can forgive. We can live at peace with people who have offended us. So, of course, we learn from Onesimus. He was compelled to go and make peace with Philemon. We, we learn in the life of Philemon, he was compelled by the gospel to go and forgive, to forgive his brother, to receive him back, to trust God with his wrongdoing. And there's one more person in this story that I want us to hear from, to think about. But before before we get to that person, I actually today want you to hear from some people in our story, some people who are a part of this story, this Christ covenant story, and, and to hear from them about what the gospel has compelled them, has led them to do. And so I'm going to invite Dan and Tammy Chin and also Courtney Mitchell uh, up on stage uh, to just share with you for a few moments about how the gospel has compelled them uh, to action. Well, thanks, Jason. Um, so when Tammy and I first started dating, I knew it was going to be very challenging. I come from a conservative Taiwanese family, and I would be the first one in many, many, well, all generations really to date or marry outside of my race. Um, so Tammy and I dated for three years, um, there were a lot of challenges and hostility um, from family, and, um, but there was also increasing signs from God that Tammy was the one for me to marry. 
Um, and as the engagement date drew near, um, the hostility also increased. And my dad would say anything he could to try to dissuade me, throwing out threats like, you are not my son. Don't ever come home. You're never going to Taiwan. And how can I bear this shame in front of my family and my friends that you are marrying somebody outside of my race? Um, so that was very challenging, but at the same time, nonetheless, I pressed forward towards engagement, um, decided to write an email with friends and family and my parents included, and what ensued was a giant mess. Um, my dad and his impulsivity decided to um, first uh, spoil the engagement to Tammy and also what happened afterwards was a volley of emails between, angry emails between my dad and my friends. So in the aftermath of this, Tammy and I got together, got on our hands and knees and said, Lord, what do we do here? And it was through a series of friends. It was through a pastor um, and then through two dear friends um, that actually are members at Christ Covenant, Jared and Tasha Felacy that we realized we needed, we needed to make an appeal of love, even though it was going to be very hard. So we went on this journey, and I'm going to hand the mic off to Tammy to share more about it. So as you can imagine, this three years of, you know, words spoken over me, very painful words, um, and just feeling really rejected and um, judgment for things that I had no control over. Um, I, I knew that a lot of bitterness and anger was starting to kind of grow in my heart, especially after the in this episode. And um, Dan and I had been praying through our relationship that God would use us and that we would glorify him. And so after praying, God put on my heart a scripture during this time, First um, John 4, that says, um, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so I you know, knew after praying that I had to lay all of my feelings, all of the hurtful words, all of the rejection, all of the pain down at the feet of Jesus. And we had to get in the car and drive 11 hours to Michigan. And we had to bring a gift and tell them that we loved them and that we... Um, wanted them to be in our relationship and that we wanted their support. And um, we could see like almost visibly that that act of love opened the door completely to their hearts, like immediately, um, especially in Dan's dad, which was really impressive. And, um, and just through it all, God really showed us that um, true forgiveness is not necessarily passive, um, and it's not always prayer, but sometimes it is love in action. And um, yeah, oh, and Dan wanted me to remind, we, we went to Taiwan and we, you know, now we're, we are a family. God has completely restored us and restored the whole situation. No one has any bitterness towards anyone. And um, now we're a family in the Lord, so. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so obviously in Dan and Tammy's story, the gospel compelled them to pursue oneness, to pursue fellowship, to pursue forgiveness. Um, Courtney's got a story, though, where the gospel, there wasn't some sort of uh, um, personal 
hurt or pain, but it was really you just kind of saw some brokenness around you, and it led you to pursue uh, some particular people. So why don't you tell us about that? So I'm going to back up a little bit before I get to that specific piece, but something that I love about God and that I can see consistently just in my story is his pursuit of me and the way that he made himself known to me. And so I grew up in a family that I love so much um, that I'm so thankful for, but church was not a part of our day-to-day. Um, but in the kindness of God, he ended up sending me to what my parents called me a rinky-dink little Christian school, which is where I came to have faith in Christ and where my life was changed. And so that was one of the first places I saw the Lord pursuing me. Um, this week, I was looking through a big bin of old letters. I love letters. And I saw letters from youth leaders, from camp counselors, and from my parents, because now they know the Lord as well. And I was looking through um, all of those letters, and all of them were pursuing me and pushing me towards the love that Christ has for me and what he has done for me. And so I love that I can look back and see specific ways that the Lord has pursued me and drawn me in to who he is. And so um, I love as believers that we're called to pursue people as well. And there was one specific night in college that the Lord was really pressing on my heart the foster care community in Auburn, Alabama. And so I stayed up late researching and then asked a lot of questions to a lot of people and was like, Lord, what does it look like for me right now to love these specific kids that are in um, these really hard situations? And so I had grown up and had gone to Canicut camps and had worked there for quite a few summers. And so I love camp and I love the way that camp uses adventure and fun and encouragement to draw kids and people towards the gospel and towards himself. And so I called some friends and was like, hey, will you start a mini camp with me for the kids in foster care in Auburn? And um, they all said yes, and we had no clue what we were getting ourselves into. Um, but what is so fun is to look back to see the Lord's hand on that. So this was the fifth year. We call it Camp Agape in Auburn, Alabama, and the ninth one overall, which is really fun. And it was actually the past Friday and Saturday. And so this weekend, there was about 130 kids and about the same number of college volunteers that um, we got to just be alongside um, one another pursuing the Lord. And two things stuck out to me. I still have a lot to process from this weekend. Um, but one was watching the counselors pursuing their kids. So because of the lot, a lot of the trauma that a lot of the kids have gone through. Um, there's moments where kids are just everywhere running around, but getting to remind the counselors that it's worth it to run after them and to look in the eyes, their eyes and remind them of the gospel. And throughout the whole weekend, there's a lot of fun. We do a carnival, we do a gospel skit that ultimately points to Jesus and what he did for us. And um, it's truly so fun, but the whole point of it is that they understand the love that the Lord has for us. So Jeremiah 31.3 is the verse that we use for camp. And it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. And so the two words that we really focus on is the love of God and then his faithfulness. Um, and that we can know that God is faithful because of who he is. And then the second group of people um, that the Lord really was showing me this weekend was these families that are involved in fostering and adopting these kids. And I stood there and listened to some moms um, just share their joy in the way that they had seen the Lord working 
in the lives of these kids. Um, and then I stood there with um, one mom in particular, and her son had just, it had been a really hard day for him. And there's been a lot of hard and trauma in his life. And she looked at me and she just started crying. And she was like, I know it is worth it to keep loving him, but this is really hard. Um, and just thank you for loving him today. And so as I was talking to her, um, I was so encouraged. Both um, of those specific situations that I'm talking about, they both knew that because of the gospel, um, they needed to pursue and love these kids well. Um, not because of anything that um, they've done, but because of the gospel. And so um, just kind of wrapping up, um, I love how I can see how the Lord pursued my heart to know him. Um, and then I love that as believers, um, he calls us to pursue people to make his name known. And so um, like right now, one of those ways for me is the foster care community, just wanting them to know that they are loved and seen and valued. Um, and I just think it's cool that God uses us in all those ways awesome. to make his name known. Awesome. Thanks, Courtney. Can we give the chins and Courtney a great hand? Great job, guys. <clears throat> Well, I love those stories, and I just wanted us to, to process, okay, what, what, is, what is the gospel compelling us to do? What does it mean to be somebody new in Christ? What, is, what does that look like in your life? Obviously, we had a story of forgiveness. We had a story of even pursuing some folks, but let me leave you just one more. We've obviously looked at Onesimus and Philemon, um, but even going along with what Courtney shared, we also see the gospel compelling Paul to something. Uh, you know, the, the name Onesimus means useful. It means useful. And, you know, verse 11, Paul's kind of playing on this. He says, look, this guy was formerly useless to you, but now in Christ, now because of what Jesus has done for him, he's actually useful to you. He's, he's actually useful to me. I wish he could stay around and help me. And I think this teaches us so much about the Christian life. This, this guy, this, this, this runaway slave, which in the first century, he ran away from a good household. In the first century, to be a, a runaway bondservant from a good household was an incredibly dishonorable thing to do. And so Onesimus shows up to this, now he's in jail, he shows up to this jail cell next to Paul, totally ashamed, totally dishonored, he would have been seen by the whole world around him as just a useless bum. And this is exactly who Paul believes in. It's exactly who Paul gives himself to. It's exactly who Paul pursues. And I just want to say, as I thought about this this week, this was very convicting to me. It is very easy when someone has let you down, when someone has sinned in a major way, when someone uh, has you know, fails you in a particular way, it is very easy to kind of give up on them and to say, Psh, what a bum. They're useless. They can't be used by God. And yet the posture of Paul here is to find that person and pursue them and go after them and give himself to them. And as we see, even sacrifice for them, even put stuff on his account on their behalf. And I so want this to be the posture of our church, that Christ's covenant would be known as a people who pursues, that we would have a culture of pursuit as a church, that we would pursue one another, that we would 
that we would pursue one another in love, that we would, sometimes that means correction, sometimes that means encouragement, that we would pursue people outside of our church, that we would believe that God can actually use them, that God could do something great in their life. I so want this to be true of us. I never want this to be a place where uh, you, you don't feel like you're being pursued by someone. And I'd almost rather pursue you to the point where you're a little annoyed by it than than for you to not feel pursued at all. And then the second thing I want to say to you, kind of in light of this, is you may be kind of walking in today like Onesimus walked into that jail cell, and you may be like, oh, man, this is Paul. (laughs) This is, I've heard about him. This guy's like starting churches left and right. This guy was an amazing scholar. This guy, like, I'm not Paul, you know. You may have heard these stories and you're like, golly, the chins, what, what forgiveness. But they're so mature, you know. I mean, it's Dan Chin, it's Tammy. They're like the smartest people I know. And so I can't be like them, you know. Or Courtney Creedon, like, I mean, who's more gifted than Courtney Creedon? You may be like, okay, you know, Jason, thanks for parading, like, the great Christians in front of us. But that's not me. I, I'm, I'm no Philemon. I'm no, I mean, he had a book of the Bible named after him. I'm no Paul. And I just want to say to you, don't you see that this is exactly who God pursues? Onesimus was a useless slave, and the gospel made him a useful brother for Philemon. Philemon, he was the guy. Who was Philemon? Philemon was this successful businessman that never had time for God. You know, he was that guy in your workplace that you've been trying to reach that, you know, always, he knows the nice thing to say because he's a nice guy, but he's not interested in the things of the Lord. And now he's the guy that the church is meeting at his house. He's a leader in the church. Who is Paul? You know who Paul is? Paul was the worst of all. He was a murderer. He was literally terrorizing the Christian church. And this is who God pursued to now be a leader in the church. And I just want to say to you, now, if you feel like, man, God can never use me, no, you're, you're exactly the kind of person that God wants to use, that God wants to make his name great through. And realize how much God has pursued you, how he is pursuing you even now, how he's pursuing you in Christ, how he gave his own son so that you could be reconciled to him, and then by being reconciled to him, so that you could be his righteousness on earth. Don't you see who you are? So there's a lot here. And, and I want to just ask you, go ahead and just bow your heads with me. I, I don't exactly know what God may be doing in your heart right now. But look, there, there may be some people in here today, and, and you like Onesimus, you need to go and make something right. And until you go and make that thing right, God's really not going to use you in the way that he wants to, in the way that you need to be used. You need to go and pursue reconciliation or forgiveness. You need to go pay a debt off. You may not know exactly what that looks like, but, but seek some wisdom. Seek the body. Some of you are like Philemon, and there is someone who has hurt you so deeply, and there is great bitterness, and there is unforgiveness in your heart, and you need to forgive them. You need to remember how much in Christ you have been forgiven, and you need to go and forgive. There are some of you, like Paul, and there's God has put somebody in your way that you're called to pursue, and maybe you've kind of given up on them. You know, today's the day that you need to 
send them a text message or give them a call or set up a lunch or whatever that looks like. And there are some of you that need to realize right now where you sit that actually God is pursuing you. God is pursuing you. The fact that you're here, the fact you're listening to this, God is pursuing you. You know, we understand the gospel. We understand that the very God that we have offended with our sin has pursued us in Christ. We understand that, that that always compels us. That always pushes us. That always moves us to something. And so, Father, I pray that whatever you're moving us toward today, it would be clear. It would give us the faith and the courage and the energy to look to Jesus, the author of our faith, but also the perfecter of our faith, also the one that, that leads us in all of these challenges, that leads us as we forgive, that leads us as we pursue reconciliation, that leads us as we start a camp for foster kids, leads us in all things. May we look to him today, Father. May we look to him today more than we ever have and be made right and be made and be made into the righteousness of God. So I pray all this in Jesus' name. You know, one of the ways that we look to Jesus is through... Uh, this ancient church tradition that Jesus himself gave us called communion. And here in a few moments, I'm going to invite you to come forward. If you're a believer, if, you're, if you find your identity in Jesus, if you believe that God in Christ has pursued you and you've, you've placed your faith in him, then I ask you to come forward and, and to take some bread, which represents the body of Christ that was broken for you, to take a cup, which represents his blood that was spilled out for you. And of course, the these, uh, these elements are available to you if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, if you haven't identified with Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. We're so glad that you're a part of this worship service. But again, just, just this is not really an act for you. So we ask that you would honor uh, what this symbolizes and what this means uh, just by letting these elements pass by, by, by either staying in your seat or just even just by walking by the table as you come. And if there's somebody here today and you have any questions or comments, I'll be standing in the back. Would love the opportunity to pray with you. Uh, Chris Glover, one of our elders, is over here by the store. We also love that opportunity. So if you, if you as you're coming, if you want to come and, and pray with us, we'd love that opportunity. But I invite you to stand now. Come. If you'll come down on your right, go back to your left as Matt leads us. In Christ alone. Hope is found, He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my come. My all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand In Christ alone Who took on flesh Fullness of God in helpless babe Seek you. 